This is Utah Survivors Podcast with your host, Brandon and Alex. In the world of true crime TV, we're bringing you the story straight from the survivors. Victims don't become survivors without the help of a community. So every week, we will have a 30-minute interview alternating between a survivor of crime and an organization that helps victims in similar situations. Due to the graphic nature of crime, many of the topics we discuss may be difficult for some listeners. If you are in crisis or triggered by these discussions, please reach out to local and national hotlines listed on our website, utahsurvivors.org. Welcome to another episode of Utah Survivors. This week on the show, we have Chad Sorensen, who is currently a patrol deputy with the Cache County Sheriff's Department. Welcome to the show, Chad. Hi, thank you. Thanks so much for coming on. You know, Alex and I both have worked with you several times in the past, but why don't you tell us a little bit about you, your history, how you got involved um, in or started your career as a police officer and working up to where you are today? Sure. So um, went through the academy at UVU, uh, graduated there <clears throat> back when I was still super competitive to get into law enforcement. Um, at the time oh, I was living those, in Spain. Those days. I remember yeah. those days. Do you? Like, yeah. For instance, in Orem one time I put in for there and I think 400 people showed up for five positions. Holy cow. So, the days before they like, like it was before they gutted all the retirement and all that stuff too, right? Yeah, no, exactly. And, and made it so, so appealing for people to give up you know, making real money in the private sector and come do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's bad. I hate it. <laughs> yeah. It's unfortunate. Um, so I finally, uh, was able to get a position with the Duchesne County Sheriff's office at the corrections facility out there, <clears throat> which got me in on the, uh, the first round of retirement, which is good. Um, I was living in Spanish Fork. I'd go up and I'd work my shifts and rent a room from one of the patrol guys uh, in, in this place out in Altamont. I did that for about three months, and then Midville called me and offered me a position in patrol. Um, I, I couldn't get there quick enough. I can only imagine working at a correctional facility would be rough. Yeah, all on its own. And and the people I worked with were fantastic, you know. I mean, I really enjoyed the time we spent together. Great guys and, you know, had a lot of fun. But, you know, man, it was it was rough having to drive all the way up there the one day and, you know, work your shift and then you're sleeping in this. Uh, I, I don't want to complain. It, it was worth it. I got in and that's how I got my, my start. Um, once I got to Midville, I was there for about uh, eight months before Unified. Uh, the merger occurred between Midville and uh, Unified. And I was then transferred from Midville up to Mill Creek um, because I didn't have any seniority, which was fine. Mill Creek treated me really well. I ended up getting a new car and uh, some better equipment. Um, I, I worked in patrol up in Mill Creek for five years. Um I filled in for the sergeant as the the lead when he wasn't available um, or off on vacation, which was great experience. Um, and then I, I ended up 
in this unique position. I, I had thought to myself that, you know, the way it was going to go for me was I was going to do my time, maybe get a shot at, you know, property crimes or something. And then end game for me was going to be, you know, the violent crimes homicide unit. That's what I've always wanted to do. Um, but somehow I ended up with this opportunity to go to homicide straight out of patrol. Um, oh, that's nice. Yeah. Super uncomfortable, huge growing pains, um, lots of stress, <clears throat> but it it was the right thing to do. And I don't regret any of it. It's It's been a fantastic, you know, journey, the way it all worked out. Um, I'm a big believer in everything happens for a reason. And, um, you know, I, I just got to a point uh, in around the four and a half, five year mark in homicide, um, that last year of which I'd picked up a, uh, investigator's position with the medical examiner as well. I was one of the Salt Lake six. And so every six days you're on call, uh, with the medical examiner as well. And it, it kind of forced this burnout, um, between officer involved, you know, critical incidents, uh, homicides, the medical examiner, autopsies, you know, just a lot of, um, death. A lot of death. Yeah. 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 And you know, it, I'll be honest with you guys. Um, I I've seen a lot and I've seen a lot of different ways that people, you know, die, um, from natural oh. to homicide, you know, um, I can only imagine what you've seen. Yeah. It's, it's been, you know, and it's super interesting. It still is. Um, you know, because it, there, there's, there's this, uh, saying, and I can't remember who says it, but, um, it's in the medical legal, uh, book of, uh, death investigations. And, and in it, it says people who will not face death will not truly live life. It's because we're all biological beings and inevitably we all die. And so maybe that's my fascination with this, but, yeah. um, yeah, um, but to be honest with you, I was I was to a point where none of that really affected me. Even you know the the handling of of the bodies and the, and on the medical examiner side, it, it was just part of the process for me. The the real burnout for me was uh, grief related stuff and the notifications to family, you know, spouses, um, whatever the surviving family looked like, whatever that dynamic was. It was just always took a little piece of you, you know, when you had to be the one to go and tell them. That, that their loved one was gone. So yeah, um, that's hard. Then yeah, um, I, I think that I would have toughed it out. But then the the political environment changed um, down in Salt Lake City, <clears throat> and it became increasingly um, obvious to me that things were going to change in a way that was going to make law enforcement very different than what I had been used to. And so I started looking around, you know. And um, I reached out to Cass County. I saw that they were uh, hiring. And the sheriff uh, reached out to me, and, and I went up and met with him in person. And two minutes into it, I was like, man, there's a talking to an old friend. You know, and I just felt like, well, this is where I hope I end up, because this is who I want to work for. <laughs> sure enough, a uh, couple weeks later, I got a hold of me. He didn't have a position, but he went to the board and... Uh, requested funds to create a new allocation and offered me that spot. And I was more than happy to come up here for uh, the change of scenery, uh, the change of political environment. 
And it's been it's been a fantastic change for me. My stress level is is different than it's been in several I sleep better. Uh, my my digestive tract is working properly. Um, <laughs> all, all these things that that are you know collateral damage of that um, that position um, as a homicide detective and death investigations. You know it, it all kind of self corrected, and so um, I got out at a good time. And, um, I'm just loving what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm just working with the community up here and, and I'm doing accidents and, and just patrol stuff. It's been great. It's funny that you say like your digestive tracts working and things. Cause the, the secondary trauma from this work is so real and our bodies just respond to it in ways we don't choose. You're exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. I know. So, it's crazy. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, um, but that that's kind of me in a nutshell. That's that's my career in a nutshell, anyways. Gonna say so. I was gonna say, and you're also a dad. We know you got a four year old at least up oh, there. Yes, with you. Yeah, yeah. She's uh, she has been a, a saving grace for me. Um, it was kind of weird becoming a dad late in life, like I did. But mm-hmm. uh, she will never know how many times she helped dad out when he came home from. An, an infant death or a child abuse homicide and got uh-huh. to wrap her up and, and hug her and, and love her and, you know, just be so grateful that, that I wasn't that family, that I wasn't the one that was yeah. losing a child. So yeah, she, she's the been kids, absolutely fantastic. The kids ones would be really hard for me. They, the death notifications. They, yeah. they, uh, they, you know, I think that the first year I was in homicide, we had three or four child abuse homicides. Oh. And there were, three of them were pretty bad. And I remember, I mean, I just, it just, it takes a piece of you. It, I don't know how else to say it. It just does. I think that's like, there's no way else for it to say other than it will take a piece of you because it is. Like it's a baby, and especially when someone's yeah. own else's choice of violence ends their life, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah, and you know, I've I've been to training, and um, in this training, this particular training, the the teacher was telling us that there was four reasons basically that children get killed in their own homes, and it's it's all basically those those basic functions of life. It's um, you know, they're not potty trained and so they have an accident, they make a mess, they break something, or, you know, they won't go to sleep. You know, these basic functions of life that little people struggle with, you know, it's just part of the, the development process. Yeah. And, they're little people. Yeah, they're little people. And some adults don't process that the right way. And, you know, they end up being violent towards them. And it's, it's not always like, I mean, I had to accept this as, as much as I'm against, you know, being an advocate for these people. I had to at least wrap my head around how somebody could do something like that, because it, it just about, you know, when it takes that piece of you, you kind of need that closure too. you know, how, how could you do this? You know, <clears throat> it's just yeah. temporary insanity that occurs. You know, they're, the, the parents are tired. The kids aren't sleeping. You know, they're sick. They're upset stomachs, you know, whatever they, you know, they need to be changed. Um, and, and they just snap, 
they they snap yeah. and they're not they're not that same person at least at that time. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly doesn't excuse what they do, but it was just something that I had to kind of wrap my head around. I wanted to kind of go through, you know, you and I have worked together on quite a few few cases when you were with uh, Unified in Salt Lake, and I'm uh-huh. and as well as with Alex, and you know, you talked a little bit about um, like you know, having to go and give those death notifications and things like that. But even then, you know, I can think of one that we did to, that we kind of, I was working, obviously I work the civil side and you're working the criminal and, but you're still helping a lot mm-hmm. on the, on the stuff that we do, but not, not every time the family, you, you can't give it to them in person. You have to right. call them up on the phone or, you know, sometimes they're, hours away and they have no idea that anything had been happening what yeah. how is that process for you in general if that if that makes sense just kind of well, it, it, it does um I'll, I'll give you an example it's, it's a case that's adjudicated it was a murder suicide that occurred and uh the female victim uh was from Juneau, alaska and this this happened in midville <clears throat> Um, so what we did is we reached out to the local law enforcement in Juneau to go make contact with mom, um, to give her just kind of some, some very generic information, but it was accompanied by my name and phone number. And so when she called, then I was able to do the notification over the phone. Um, one of the things that I learned, um, in, in working in violent crimes and homicide is that, you know, it's, it's not like you're ever just done, at least in my mind, in my heart, I was never just done. Um, when we held people accountable or when we had notified family, because, you know, you're, you're going through this horrible thing with the family. And I felt very invested in that. And I tried very hard to stay in contact with people um, to, you know, sometimes it was just to listen to this mother uh, from Juneau, Alaska, cry. You know, I, she'd call and just cry. And I would stop everything I was doing, just listen to her. Um, but but inevitably, what, what ended up happening is um, she sent me a picture of her daughter um, from when she was alive. And she she sent it in this email. And in the email, she said, I wanted you and the other detectives that worked on this to know what my daughter looked like. She says, I, I feel so sorry for you that you had to see her that, that day, the way that she was, but I wanted you to remember her this way. And, Aww. um, it, yeah, it was super, I mean, you know, I'll admit it, you know, I've teared up more than once, uh, in this job. I'm, I'm, I'm very human and I'm not ashamed of that. Um, this was one of them. And, you know, I, I hung on to that, that picture. Um, and, and I shared it with the rest of the unit and it had a very profound effect on everybody because that, that closure that occurred with this, that was so significant for all of us, because a lot of times we walk away from these cases with just the images of how they look that day, you know, and here this mother who's grieving gave us, um, that peace of mind and gave us that closure. So, um, it's just, it's a process and you just, you go with it, you know, you, you go through all the stages with the family 
they're they're angry they're you know they can't believe it happened um then they're sad and and you just you roll with it you know you don't ever hold them at fault because there's no set standard on how people react to this type of stuff so I think that's beautiful that she did that because I've helped a lot of victims when they make their victim impact statements at sentencing. The biggest, mm-hmm. a lot of them, the biggest thing that they, I want the judge to know who my child was. They aren't just the way they died. And so I think yeah. that's beautiful that my mom did that for you instead of, because like they don't owe you anything. Right. But to give you no. that and to give you that closure and let her into mm-hmm. who her daughter was, I think is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it meant a lot to me, for sure. Do you miss homicides at all? Do you think you'll ever do those up in cash? Yeah, you know, I've actually, um, I've, there there was a, in a spot that opened up in investigations, and I, I put in for it. Um, I don't know um, that, that they want a certain type of person in there right now. Um, so I'm supposed to find out here pretty quick, but you know, if they do select me, I'll go in there and work hard for them, and and we'll go back to business as usual, just a much slower uh, process. You know, it's, you're not dealing with death of the same way as you are in Salt Lake, not up here. Yeah, not totally as often, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So, you know, one one thing that definitely happens. I think you were even talking about it a little bit earlier is you kind of not just burnout, but just the effect that dealing with all these homicides take on your, your mental health. How do you, how do you help or handle your mental health? What do you do? Like what's your routine to help you with when you're having a hard time mental health wise after dealing with some of these harder cases? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I have, in older age, I have finally developed some maturity. <laughs> uh, <it> happens <laughs> for all guys. Um, I, I was able to hit it at some point. I'm almost 50. Um, so better late than never, right? Hey, um, at least you got to figure it out at some point. That's right. That's right. Um, I, I had to, you know, be honest with myself and take a good hard look at, you know, how I was treating my family and the relationships. Uh, that I have with people in my house and they weren't great. It it was pretty bad for a while. And um, I finally uh, broke, broke it down in my mind that I needed to go talk to somebody. And so I did. And and I still do. I still see this therapist every once in a while when things start, you know, building up or I can feel, you know, some of those stuff coming back. Um, so I do that and she's great. She's, she's a tiny little lady, but she isn't scared of me one bit. She calls me on my crap and <laughs> if I try to mitigate or make it sound like it's no big deal. She's like, Oh, that's interesting. Now let's talk about that some more because you're totally full of crap right now. Um, that's good. It's been, yeah, it is. It is. And I appreciate her being that way with me. I respond well to that type of, um, and I think most of us type A personalities in law enforcement are like that. We respond well to, you know, that conflict, um, it, it makes us have to be honest with things, you know, and I think a lot of us, uh, respond well to that. Yeah, I agree. I totally understand that and agree with that. I think it's 
huge to admit like you therapy is a resource for you. Yeah. No, it's and and the thing is is I, I don't know, maybe maybe I am not saying this the right way, but to me it feels like none of us ever want to be classified as a victim. Whether it's a property crime or a, a crime against us. <clears throat> but it's also, you know, as a first responder or as an investigator we're a victim of the the trauma that occurs, you know, going through that type of stuff. And, you know, if you recognize that, um, you know, then at least you can get the help you need so that you're not damaging those relationships with the people that are going to be with you after your career is over. No, I completely agree because I think any of us who work in this field with victims and see the trauma, it, it really does affect you. Like it affects your life. It does. And like for me, I'm like, if we can't admit that this is literally changing our bodies, like the science tells us it does, then Mm -hmm. all we're going to do is end up, we're going to be burnt out and hurting the ones we love and hurting the people we serve. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly right. Especially when you're not able to, focus that definitely can affect the cases in the end on making sure that you uh oh pun- you know appropriately bring the person to justice if you're if you're distracted because of your your mental health and well-being you're definitely not doing your best work you're right yeah you're not effective and you know that's that's one of the things that because you're in that position you know you especially with the homicide you get one shot at that initial scene. And if, if you're not on point, um, you need to hand that off to somebody who is because it's, it's not something that, oh, well, the victim can bear the brunt of this. No, no, that's not the way it works. Um, you, you check your pride and ego at the door and you're there to be a voice for the dead and to represent the victims, the surviving victims, uh, to the best of your ability, even at the sacrifice of your own well-being. That's that's basically the way I always looked at it. I think that's a great way to look at it because in a lot of cases, you may not ask a question during an investigation. You can always go back to the victim. But here, the story the victim has to tell is through the place where they were, their life was taken. Yeah. And it's only there once. Yeah. Especially if you miss it. Yeah. Yeah, everything changes. And it, it could be something as as big or small. I mean, it depends on, you know, how much that evidence uh, points you to a suspect. But, you know, blood drops um, will shrink in size and they'll change in color and density over time. And, you know, it's very important that you recognize those things and, and just it's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Just over yeah. process scene, over collect evidence. It doesn't matter. If you don't need it down the road, you can get rid of it. But yeah. you know, I was always a big believer in, hey, let's get everything, you know, to the point you're taking big pieces of furniture, you're cutting out chunks of wall, you're taking vehicles, you know. That that's all part of it. And and you know, you're doing it for the right reasons. And you just have to have to understand that um, from the minute you get there on that scene, that there's no clock that you're going to punch out on. No one's going to come tap you on the shoulder and say, your eight hours is up. You need to go home. You're there for as long as it takes. And sometimes that was days. 
you know, so. Yeah. And I can definitely vouch vouch for your philosophy there on collecting as much as you need because we've, like I said, we've worked enough cases where either uh, I've found some stuff later that wasn't either at the scene or connected at all. And then I'm like, hey, do you want this? And you're like, yep, I just, you'll just take it (laughs) just because. And so it's, it's, it's really great to kind of see that because there are other cases I deal with where I'm like, hey, do you want this electronic device? And they're like, no, we've got enough, and I'm like, and it always perplexes me because I'm like, well, what if, what if one of your pieces of evidence fails or gets thrown out? Like, don't you want something to back up? But I, I get that that's a decision. But yeah. I, I did like when I did work with you about how much evidence you would take, especially if the family was like, hey, I want to give this to them. You would always take it, even if it yeah. wasn't going to be something that you could use in the future. You were always happy to do it because it was something that the family wanted. Yeah. Definitely. So can you, obviously, like I work usually after the investigation is done at least 80% of the time. Will you walk yeah. us through kind of what it's like to be called to a homicide or a death notification and investigate those cases a little bit? Sure. So any of those big investigations, um, when you get there, <laughs> it's chaos there's a lot of people and there's a lot of moving parts and you know it's it's one of those things where if you're not working well as a team um it can be very difficult to to get it done effectively um essentially what you're you're going to do is you're going to show up and you're going to get the basic information in a briefing it's usually in a command post or you know, some fifth wheel trailer somewhere where they've got a, a an IC set up and you're going to meet in there and you're going to take a lot of notes and uh, someone will be designated to take notes and put it on a whiteboard. And, you know, you take a picture of that whiteboard every night when you leave mm-hmm. um, to go do your assignments. And, and then, you know, you look at it and then you break it down. It's like eating an elephant. Um, you have these big scenes a lot of the time, you know, let's say a homicide occurs in, a, in an apartment complex. Well, now you've got this huge neighborhood canvas that you've got to do. Um, you've got, uh, you know, someone that's going to get assigned warrants to write warrants for, you know, the, the home where it occurred or vehicles or all everything that's involved. Um, yeah. Then, you know, you're going to have people, if, if you do have a suspect in custody, you're going to have people that are going to be taking them, to your headquarters and you're going to be doing interviews and um, you do warrants on them there as well prior to booking. Um, and then, you know, it just, once you get the initial thing, even if you make an arrest, um, these cases go on and on and on. And, Forever. I mean, sometimes for years, <laughs> they do. <laughs> and so, Basically, the first two days is like just a massive adrenaline dump. And I'll admit, I was hooked on that for a while because when you show up, I mean, you're just every every sense in your body's going off and you're tingling. And it's just this sense of, you know, all right, we got to catch somebody or we got to, you know, all this stuff to do. And you, you just dig in and whatever you're assigned, you go do it to the best of your ability. Um. And then, you know, the very next day, regardless of how long you're there on scene, uh, if you're the case agent, you'll go to the autopsy at the medical examiner. 
um, those are always uh, super helpful and, you know, in, in my opinion, very uh, interesting. Uh, I've learned so much about the human body um, in my time at homicide and being able to go to those autopsies. Um, and then moving forward, you know, you, <clears throat> there's always, you know, just a ton of warrants and follow up, you know, other people coming out of the woodwork for interviews. Um, and then once you get enough to screen it, then you'll go do an in-person, uh, screening with the homicide team at the district attorney's office, um, which generates, you know, a lot of questions, a lot of debate, uh, with, with that team. And then, um, you get your follow-up from that and you just continue to move forward. And, um, it's, it's just, it's like a living thing. And it sounds dumb because you're talking about a death investigation, but it really is in a lot of ways. It's a living thing. The media wants all the information and mm-hmm. you know, your upper admin wants all the information. And, um, it's just, it's just, it just goes and goes and goes and goes. I think that's interesting because I, I like the representation of a living thing because it does feel like that. And especially when you're going through the screening process and if they want more information and the media is trying to get an update and mm-hmm. it's one of the cases where it's not, it's like obvious who it is, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, did you ever have cases where you couldn't find a perpetrator? Um, <clears throat> I've worked on them. I've, I've been fortunate in that um, all of the ones that I had uh, came to resolution one way or another. Um, oh, that's good. I didn't have any cold cases, yeah. And so I think that was part of my my reasoning as well, you know, recognizing the burnout. Um, but also, you know, I was going on not, not a, a 100% conviction rate, but, you know, all the answers that could be, all the questions that could be answered were answered. And there was no outstanding evidence. There was no, um, you know, if, if someone did it, it was, it was uh, proven and they were convicted or um, it went to the point that it's like, we just aren't going to move forward with charges and here's why. How was that on cases where they couldn't move forward with charges? Because I obviously, like, I know how they go and how the family feels, but from your side, what does that feel like when you, because when people file charges, we know that it's a high level of evidence is needed. And so there may be a point where they don't file, even though you know who did it, there's just not the evidence to say they did it. Yeah. And I'll even add to that. Um, juvenile offenders um, worked very hard on a case um, over a year. It was at least 18 months. Um, developed a, a good working relationship with an individual out of uh, Louisville, um, Kentucky. Um, he was a, a police physician, which was new to me, but he was... Um, able to review the case file and and what he was able to do was um, show the distance the weapon was uh, from the victim at the time it was fired, which proved 
um, beyond a shadow of a doubt that he did not do it to himself. And then, you know, after, after this 18 months and all this, this investigative effort, um, because of the JRI matrix, um, the person who we proved did it was not held accountable. Um, and to, to have to talk to the family, um, was, was very heartbreaking. It was very difficult. And they, they didn't understand what, how this was that they knew that this person had done this and killed their son. Um, but now, uh, they really weren't going to be punished for it either. And, um, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, no, and it was super difficult. And I, I would just, uh, with, with that particular case, I would, when I recognized the number coming in, it was either the mom or the dad. Um, I would just drop everything I was doing and answer the phone. And I never knew if they were going to, you know, yell at me, they were venting or crying or, you know, um, what, what the, the uh, motive was for the phone call, but, um, I, I just would answer the phone and just let them say whatever they had to say, because mm-hmm. I felt exactly the same as they did, you know, at, at least to a point, uh, it wasn't my son, but I was very yeah. frustrated and, and I could empathize with where they were coming from. And so when it was those times that they wanted to call and yell, I was like, have at it you got to get this yeah. out of your system and I get it. So, and they can't go yell at like, the, they can't go yell at a judge or the lawmakers. They have you like you're the system to them. Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm the easy target. So. And sometimes that's yeah. really I mean, all the, the victims or the survivors need. They just need somebody to listen and talk with them. Cause I can't tell you how many times, you know, I've had people just like, I just, like, they just go off and they just want to talk and then they're, they're good. They just need somebody to listen or hear what they're saying because they don't, nobody else is, or they don't have a way to make it so someone else is kind of like what you were saying with not being able to hold them, the perpetrator accountable in some way or another, or, um, just the court processes are moving really slowly. And so it, it looks like nothing's happening, but you know, they just, you know, it's just a long time. I, I know that I always try to temper expectations with people. I tell them the first thing, Hey, from the day of the charge to the date of sentencing, you're looking at a minimum of two years. Don't, don't expect it to happen any quicker than that. If it does happy, happy day that it happened quicker, but don't expect it to be quicker than two years. And everybody's always so surprised because the, the way that they talk to with the prosecutors or victim advocates they make it seem like a quick process and that's not necessarily their fault but that's just how they you know court terms quick is is two years <laughs> um but yeah. in yeah. in our terms uh, or in i shouldn't say our terms but in in a normal everyday person terms two years is not very quick no no and that's you know another thing that i always try to keep in mind is that um I deal with, with death investigations on a regular basis and I know how this goes. And I, I know, you know, probably from, um, you know, even in the last week, I've seen it happen at least once before. And I had to keep in mind 
this is the first time this has ever happened to these people. And they have no idea. And um, they've lost someone they love. And so for them, this is life changing. And for me, it's, well, this is how it goes. So um, I always had to keep that in mind as well. Yeah. Well, before we, oh, go ahead. No, it's fine. Go ahead. <laughs> um, before we kind of wrap up here, I have, I have two questions. The first one I want to ask is, it, was there a time or a case, as much as you can say, that just completely changed your life or perspective on how you either handle these violent crime investigations or just how you treat treat them because i know you were saying you know you have to look at it as if it's you have to remember that it's their first time but was there something that helped you realize that or take that approach with with the surviving family members yeah definitely um so years ago um i'll share this with you my brother committed suicide and um it was a difficult time and so I got to see it from that side, you know, with the family losing somebody like that. Um, but for me at the time, I developed this, um, this thought that, well, the only people that could do that are these horrible, selfish people. And how could they do that? You know? Um, yeah. and, and as time went on with the suicides, I started wrapping my head around the fact that for the rest of us, um, you know, we put our seatbelt on when we drive, we look both ways before we cross the road. We try to eat healthy. We take our blood pressure medications. We exercise. Why? Because we want to live. And, our, and, and somewhere inside of us is saying that we're worth living and, and we're worth, um, we have value, you know, to other people and to ourselves. And how would that be if in place of that, every day you woke up, your whole body, everything about you was telling you, you are a piece of crap. You should kill yourself. And I, I just, I had to start empathizing with these people. They, they had gotten to a point, not to where they didn't care if they hurt anyone else, but they got to a point to where they couldn't hurt themselves anymore, even if it meant it hurt other people. And so yeah. what, what that did for me when I, when I had that moment of clarity, at least in my mind, it was a moment of clarity was, um, that, you know, when we represent the victims, um, it, it really doesn't matter in the long run, the mechanism that took their loved one, whether it was, a uh, collapse of earth at a, a construction site. Um, whether it was a drug overdose, whether it was a self-inflicted gunshot or whether somebody else killed them, the, the, the end results the same. And so, um, that right there was, it, it changed my life, not only moving forward, but I was looking backwards going, Oh, how much time have I wasted? Um, thinking that I knew something that I really didn't know that much about. And so it made yeah. me be more open-minded and understand that when I approach these investigations, it's not what I think happened. That doesn't matter. Nobody cares what I think. Everybody cares what actually happened. And the only way we'll know is if we follow the evidence. 
and it made me a better investigator. And it actually, like I said, it came from uh, these suicide investigations that I went on that, you know, made me start realizing um, that no matter how long I do this, I'm never going to know everything. And really, that's not important anyway. How I feel about things is not important. And and it it, it created a shift in me so that I was more driven than I'd ever been before um, in these investigations. It wasn't about, ooh, look at me, I'm in homicide. Anyone that thinks being in a homicide is like this big, sexy job, like Hollywood portrays it to be, it's not. It's, you know, no. you're crammed in a van eating McDonald's at three in the morning, everyone stinks, everyone's in a bad mood, and it's not glamorous at all. But you're doing that because you're you're representing the family. And so that was my, that was my big aha moment. In, in this line of work. Yeah. I like that. And I think it's beautiful. And I can, I can see how that would make you a better detective. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. It's, uh, it's one of those things where in, in addition to that, I always tried as, as weird as this may sound, I always tried. Um, and, and even when I didn't try, I, I would find some positive. Uh, in these cases and whether it was my own personal, like, Oh, thank God I don't have to live like that. Or thank God I don't have that problem. Um, you know, sometimes it's like, um, you were the person, the right person to be there for the family at that time. And that's happened to me, you know, um, where for whatever reason you have the right thing to say at that right time. And you're actually helping, helping them get through this incredibly difficult time. So, you know, it, it wasn't always all bad. You know, sometimes I would leave these, these scenes feeling pretty peaceful inside. We always ask this question to close out. If you had to give any kind of advice or say anything to uh, a victim of crime of any kind, what would you tell them? I think that I would tell them... <clears throat> <clears throat> that trust the process and, you know, trust yourself. Um, don't be afraid to reach out for help. I feel like it's, it's a mistake that a lot of us make in this line of work. Um, and it's more so on, on the surviving um, family member side than, than on the investigator side, but, um, we, we can't always fix things in our lives. Sometimes we need help from other people, from outside influences. Um, sometimes it's medication. Um, but don't try to do this alone. Um, don't ever be afraid to say I need help and don't, don't ever, um, allow bitterness or, or, anger or hatred um, fill your heart because when emotions high reasons low and it's already terrible, but there's, there's only one way out of it. And that's if um, you can find a way to make it make sense to you so that you can have closure for that loss and, um, you know, find a way to be you again. And it will never happen if you allow that stuff to, to take up space in your heart. 
That that's I like that. That's yeah, beautiful. That's perfect. That's a mic drop moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, thank you so much again for for coming on and talking with us. I really enjoyed talking with you and getting the perspective of an officer. I think you're our first police officer to come on and talk with us. So I'm really glad that, you know, you could be here and give us that valuable insight because I don't think a lot of people realize how much goes into being a police officer on these, any type of these calls, but especially the violent crimes calls. So thank you. Well, Brandon, while, while I've got you on here, um, I still tell people about the good work you're doing. You know, I, I think it's um, beyond amazing um, the, the service that you provide and the support that you provide, you know, um, both you and Alex. Um, you guys, no matter what, like, you've got to keep doing what you're doing. It's it's amazing. And I'm a big fan. Well, thanks. I know. Um, I know we feel the same about you. So, Yes, we do. It's true. Oh, thank I know. Victim representation is so important in today's world, and yeah, I love what I do. It's been nine years. <laughs> well, and, and that's just it. Um, I, I hope that this podcast has, uh, you know, represented you guys well in, in your functions as well, because I know I've seen it firsthand. Um, what you guys do and provide is invaluable, and. The, the people you've helped, the, the stuff that you've done is is beyond amazing. And just, I am, I'm a big fan. So keep up the good work, you guys. So glad you could join us this week. We have highlighted an amazing resource within our community. We hope that if a resource like this is ever needed, you will know where to turn or where to direct someone. Information about this week's interview can be found on our website, utahsurvivors.org. There's no power for change greater than a community discovering what it cares about. This program is supported in part by grant number 18W2025 from the Utah Office for Victims of Crime, awarded by the Office on Violence Against Women. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this program are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Office on Violence Against Women, the U.S. Department of Justice, or the Utah Office for Victims of Crime. Our theme song is DNA by Najee, featuring Amber Lynn.